Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 13 this morning. Thank you, Adam. Musicians, choir, for leading us in worship through song. Today is a special day. It is Lottie Moon's birthday, December the 12th. She was born in 1840, so she would be 181 years old today. But as we saw in the video, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is such a strategic and important offering because it goes to the ground. It goes to the missionaries on the ground who are reaching people that you and I may never meet uh, with the gospel. They're going to the hard places, 100% of that money goes to the missionaries on the ground. So please, we ask that you pray about giving sacrificially to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Forgive me for my voice. I have a little bit of sinus going. I told Adam this morning, for those of you that were the Christmas banquet Thursday night, if I had this going Thursday night, I would not have been able to sing in the quartet. <laughs> so fortunately, it came after uh, the party. But if you would look with me in verse 4. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? Amen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and this gospel that has been used mightily for 2,000 years to save people and to nourish them in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask today that by this word you would revive our souls, make wise the simple, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our spiritual eyes that we might behold the living Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, I have a special shirt on today. It it, is one of the last gifts that my mother, who died in January, gave me. And there's something unique about this shirt because on the pocket of this shirt is not uh, an alligator uh, or some other well-known logo. It's actually a boll weevil. Now, why would I be wearing a shirt with a boll weevil? Well, for those of you who are from Enterprise, you know very well why I would be wearing a shirt uh, with a boll weevil. Um, the boll weevil 
was a termite, or is a termite. And it was indigenous to Mexico. And in 1915, it had made its way to Alabama. And by 1918, it was destroying the peanut crops, especially in South Alabama. And it was a really bad time for farmers, but there was a man down there named H.M. Sessions who made this suggestion. Let's change from cotton to peanuts. Uh, cotton was the big, the big um, industry in South Alabama. And so they, they switched to peanuts and that actually was a blessing in disguise because they were much more profitable with peanuts than with cotton. And so 102 years ago yesterday, December the 11th, 102 years ago, uh, Enterprise erected and dedicated a statue to the boll weevil. That's what makes Enterprise one of the more special towns in the state. It's the only town in the world that has a monument dedicated to a termite. <laughs> because that termite was a blessing in disguise. Well, the first advent is not a mere memorial. But it does testify to a tragedy that is far greater than the loss of cotton crops. Because of the fall, now something lurks inside of all of us, every human heart that twists every thought that we have, diverts every desire, shapes the direction of every choice, and controls every word and action. The tragedy of sin can be defined in, in five words. Separation, or another word for that is alienation. We are separated by, naturally from God. And as a result, we're alienated and separated from each other. Inability, that is, we have moral inability to live for the highest motivation, which is the glory of God. Delusion. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We delude ourselves into believing that we are okay. Judgment. Judgment is the result of this separation and delusion. And hopelessness is the result of judgment. But Christmas signals that the greatest blessing in disguise of all time has come. The coming of the Son of God. Humanity is so incredibly messed up that there is only one solution for us. God must become a man and suffer as a man for us and our salvation. That's what we celebrate in the first advent, the first appearing. It's what John is getting at in his prologue. Now last week, we saw that the Son of God is the Word of God who addresses our ignorance, our spiritual ignorance. Today we're going to see that He's our very life, addressing the reality that we are separated from the life of God by nature. And He is our light. 
addressing, overcoming the darkness in our hearts. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. We see the life and light for us. Notice with me in verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now this word life is very important in the Gospel of John. It's going to appear 36 times. Uh, for instance, later on in, in John 11, when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and he raises Lazarus from the grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, verse six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But not only does Jesus, the Son of God, possess life, life is found in him. In John 5, verse 26, Jesus says, for as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, we have seen that this prologue is borrowing from Genesis 1. Essentially, it's saying that Genesis 1 points to the coming of the Son of God. And we see in the creation account that all life is a result of God's word coming to bear. And God said, and it was so. We saw that. And we saw last week that this word is a person, the Son of God. But John here is referring primarily not to physical material life, though that's certainly vital and crucial. He's referring here to spiritual eternal life. And for John, the opposite of eternal life is eternal condemnation. Now, you may not like that. You may have a different view of, of how things should be run um, if you ran the universe. But remember, you don't run the universe. And, and the scripture here is clear that the opposite of eternal life is eternal condemnation. Let me give you some support. In John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, notice, belief and obedience go hand in hand. You can't live in a manner that is not underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ and have eternal life. Obedience and belief go hand in hand. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now that's, a, that's strong language, but those are from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now I want you to keep in mind, the Bible never gives us information for information's sake. We are not Gnostics. Gnostics believed that we are saved by uh, inner secret knowledge. No, the Bible doesn't give us information for information's sake. All scripture is written in the context of God's plan to redeem us from our sin, from our fallenness, okay? And so the Bible is on a rescue mission. 
Have you ever thought about the Bible as being a rescue document? And so when the Bible gives us information, it's for our salvation. And so a central question that we can ask in Bible study or if we're reading the Bible devotionally or when I'm applying the Bible in the pulpit, a good important question is, what is the human struggle that the Holy Spirit is addressing in this passage? What is the human struggle that the Holy Spirit is addressing in this passage? So here, he's addressing the reality that apart from Christ, we're under the wrath of God. That's what he's saying right here. And so, the living word, the Son of God, comes to us through the written word, the, the word of God, and gives us new life, delivering us from the wrath of God. Uh, we're saved not by the perishable seed, but through the imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. We have now new desires, new capacities, new loves, a new righteousness, a new hatred towards our sin. We have a new love for the word of God, a new love for people. But John here is hearkening back, as I said, to the original creation. And remember what the first recorded words in the creation were? God said, let there be light. Let there be light. Genesis 1 verse 3. And John is making clear here that this light, the very life of God, is a person. And he is the agent who will bring about creation's second birth. Amen? Well, look with me in verse 5, the first part of verse 5. John writes, the light shines in the darkness. Again, this is clearly language from Genesis 1. The light shines in the darkness. But the emphasis here is on spiritual darkness, not just physical and material darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said these words, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you realize that's the reason people don't believe? It's not because they don't have enough evidence. There is plenty of evidence. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. It's because they love their sin. Their works are evil. They do not want to repent of their sin. Later in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light. This is the Son of God. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Such good news for every believer. In other words, Jesus is the hope of the prophets and the Old Testament. Again, as we read this morning in Isaiah 60, even before Isaiah 60, in Isaiah 9, where he speaks about one who will come, he will be a son who is given and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Counselor. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The prophet is speaking of one who will come, who is that light, who overcomes the darkness. And then as we read in Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
Now, that's the language that Paul is picking up on in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And John says, this light is effectual. It is effectual. Notice the second part of verse five. And the darkness has not overcome it. Indeed, darkness can no more overcome light than the creation can overcome its creator. The light is undefeated, is what John is saying. It is undefeated against darkness. We know that intuitively. We know that instinctively. When we walk into a dark room, we just, without even thinking, turn on a light switch because we know light will overcome that dark room. Now, I want you to keep in mind, John is writing this about 50 years after the resurrection, after the ascension. He's writing towards the end of his life, and there's been so much opposition to the gospel and to the church, especially starting in 64 AD with Nero. And yet, with all of that opposition, even the Roman Empire turning on the gospel, the light had not been overcome. It had not snuffed out the gospel. In fact, 2,000 years later, that light is going forth. But how? Well, there's no mystery here. It comes effectually by God himself, but instrumentally by human witness. Matthew 28, Jesus' last words before he ascended. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Um, go, therefore, and make disciples. And human witness started with the greatest of witnesses, John the Baptist himself. That brings us to the second part of this passage. The life and light witnessed. Look with me in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin by emphasizing John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark begins his Gospel with John the Baptist. Luke is going to give us a much more thorough account of his origins. And we're going to see more in verse 19. We'll, we'll, we'll wait for another day for that. But here, John's description of John the Baptist is to the point. He was sent by God for a mission. And notice in verse 7, it says, He came as a witness <clears throat> to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now again, witness is a central theme in the Gospel of John. The noun witness is found 14 times in John. The verb to witness is found 33 times in the Gospel of John. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are five who bear witness about Jesus. We see here, it's John the Baptist. Over in chapter five, I think we have this on the screen, 
in verse 36, notice it says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me. So the works of Jesus bear witness about Jesus. And then verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness. So his works, the Father bear witness about Jesus. And then in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And so the scriptures bear witness about Jesus. And then in chapter 8, um, verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself. The Son of God bears witness about himself. And then in chapter 12, in verse 17, we see another one who bears witness about Jesus. The crowd that had been with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And so the crowd that observed the ministry of Jesus bore witness about Jesus. And then in chapter 15, we see that the Holy Spirit bears witness. And when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then finally, he says to the disciples, you also will bear witness. You also will bear witness. What is the assumption there? Those that follow the disciples, those who, those who are under the authority of the apostles, will bear witness. What is a Christian? It's someone who bears witness of the one who has saved him or saved her. The emphasis on witness cannot be overemphasized. You say, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. Well, you may not have the knowledge of a football coach, but if you're a football fan, you talk about football, don't you? We talk about the things we love. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are meant to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to tell them he is the son of God. And that he has come into this world in order to save men and women. We are meant to tell men exactly why the world is as it is. We're meant to tell them about sin in the human heart. And that nobody and nothing can deal with it save the son of God. Of course, the ultimate goal in our witnessing is the glory of God. So if you share the gospel with someone and they don't respond immediately, you haven't failed. You have glorified God in that moment. That is the ultimate goal in witnessing is the glory of God. But the proximate goal is so that sinners might believe. Now, belief and repentance travel together. So it's a believing repentance and it's a repentant belief but it's so that we might believe now that verb to believe is found over a hundred times in the gospel of john the reason i give you these numbers on these on these terms is because it speaks to the emphasis 
of this gospel. Nine times it's found in 1 John, to believe. Why is that important? John would say it's a matter of life or death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But with that said, with this commission, and I've, I've been so blessed, I've got to be honest with you, We've been here six months this week. And with only a couple of exceptions, we've had baptisms almost every week. And that is, the reason for that is because ultimately God is saving, but at the instrumental level, Lakeview has a high percentage of people who witness, who bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been a blessing to me in that regard. But with that said, John the Baptist's witness was one of a kind. His was one of a kind in redemptive history. He was the messenger that Isaiah prophesied and we'll speak about next time or in verse 19 and following. Indeed, to that point, so great was John the Baptist that there were some who had exaggerated ideas about him. And so John is going to be quick to snuff out those exaggerated ideas. Notice with me in verse 8. He was not the light. Yes, he was a witness, but he was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist relates to the Son of God like the moon relates to the sun. The moon doesn't produce light. It reflects the light of the sun. And John, the disciple, cannot stress that enough. And and chapter one gives us clues as to what John the Baptist was witnessing about the Son of God. Look over in verse 29 of chapter one. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Indeed, he was before me. Now, think about this. John the Baptist was born before the Son of God. And he's saying he was before me. Then notice in verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness. Now this is to everyone here that has not trusted in Jesus yet. The greatest man who ever walked the earth apart from Jesus himself and who saw Jesus up close and personal says, I have borne witness that this is the son of God. This was the words of this great witness. Now, at this point, John is going to center on the one he was witnessing about, the light. And and two points are made in particular. First of all, the world-changing fact that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and came incarnate. But secondly, when he did, he was largely rejected. That brings us to the third part of our passage. The life 
in the light rejected. Look with me in verse 9. The true light. Now you're going to see that word true, adjective, before a noun, several times in John referring to Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I love that. Coming into the world, that's the essence of Christmas. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The light was coming into a world filled with darkness. But by affirming that Jesus is the true light, again, John is signaling he's the hope of the prophets. Because in Isaiah, Israel's depicted as the vine. In John 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. In the wilderness wanderings, they ate manna from the wilderness, but they had to eat it again the next day because it didn't satisfy their hunger. Not permanently. And Jesus says in John 6, I'm the true bread by which you eat and you will never hunger again. And here he is the true light. And the true light enlightens everyone. Now in one sense, the Son of God only gives light to those who believe because there are still those, many, who are in darkness. We've already seen that. But in another sense, there is a general illumination of the entire human race. A general illumination. Since Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world, his light has shone on the human race. But some turn from it. And you say, well, I thought you said that light overcomes the darkness. It's going to ultimately overcome the darkness, but some of that darkness will be judged. And some of that darkness will be brought to repentance. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and the source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit for all mankind. He is benefiting people who do not acknowledge him. Do you realize that? He is benefiting people today who claim to be atheists. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. And it's a New Testament fact that God has revealed himself to every human on the planet. Romans 1, 20 and following. Sufficient enough for all mankind to be culpable for their sin. But if you accept the light, you'll be saved. If you reject it, you'll be judged because you'll remain in darkness. And as a side, because the Son of God has enlightened all of humanity, when you are evangelizing, you can go with the confidence that the person you're going to evangelize as intimidating as they may seem, have already been predispositioned and hardwired for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go with confidence. Be bold. 
And yet in that, there will be some who don't believe. Notice in verse 10, he was in the world. That word world is found 80 times in John. And the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. So he uses the word world three times here. He wants us to fixate on that for a moment. Repetition in scripture is intended to get our attention. In fact, he says three things about the world here. Notice, the world, the word was in the world. So he came into the world. Secondly, the world was made through him. And then third, the world did not know him. I mean, this is staggering. The one who deserves everyone's devotion, love, loyalty, and worship subjected himself willingly to rejection. Now keep in mind, the basic sin in John is the refusal to believe. If you're sitting here today and you have not bowed the knee, you've not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a fundamental problem for, the, for John the disciple. And in verse 11, John highlights the tragedy of this rejection of unbelief. Verse 11, he came to his own, his own people. They did not receive him. Now, in this particular case, uh, John is not being anti-Semitic here. He himself is a Jew. But he came to his own nation and they did not receive him largely. The home folks did not receive him. And yet John is not going to leave us with the impression that nobody responded. Indeed, verses 10 and 11 would be really dark and hopeless for us if verses 12 and 13 were not there. But he's going to leave us here with great hope. That brings us to the final point. The life and light who saves. Look with me in verse 12. But to all who did receive him. And this is a promise to every individual here. But to all who received him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Now what does it mean to receive him? Well, to receive Jesus is to receive him as he is revealed to us in the scripture. You don't get to determine who he is. I've heard somebody say, I made him Savior, but not Lord. Well, he is Lord. So you, you don't make him anything. You either recognize his lordship or you are not saved. You either bow to his lordship or you aren't saved. But in the scriptures, the Bible reflects or reveals to us that Jesus has three saving offices. I think this is important to know. He is our ultimate prophet. He is our ultimate priest. He is our ultimate king. And so to receive him is to receive him as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. So uh, Christ is our prophet. He executes the office of prophet by revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. You don't get to determine the path for your salvation. Jesus does. 
There's only been one who's ever satisfied the wrath of God and lived to tell it. That is the Son of God who was raised from the grave. And so, he has revealed to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. You must come through him. And so, to receive him as prophet is to acknowledge that his word about salvation is true and to believe it. He's also our priest, the ultimate priest. All the prophets, priests, and kings pointed to the one who would come. They all failed in some measure under the old covenant. But this priest didn't fail. Christ the priest executes his office as priest by sacrificing himself, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and by making intercession, ever making, uh, living to make intercession for us. So what does it mean to submit or receive him as priest? It is to recognize that I need to be cleansed of my sin by his blood. I need to be covered by his righteousness, by faith. I need to be forgiven by his cross. That's what it means to receive Christ as your ultimate priest. Christ is also our king. And he executes the office of king by subduing us to himself, by ruling over us and defending us and restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. What does it mean to receive Christ as king? It means bowing the knee to the king. You don't get to come into his kingdom on your terms. You come into the kingdom on the king's terms. And so it means to bow the knee to him and open your heart to be ruled by him. And notice the effect, the result. He gave the right to become children of God. This is the language of adoption. We are by nature spiritual orphans and we are brought to the table by the adopting grace of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a remarkable truth, in fact, that John never got over it. At the very end of his life, he was contemplating that. And in 1 John 3, listen to what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And that is who we are, and so we are. So that is our responsibility, to come into the kingdom. We must receive him. We must come to him on, our ter- on his terms, not our terms. And yet, from another's perspective, we must be born again. So John closes verse 13 with that. Children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this speaks to the human responsibility, divine sovereignty, tension. And we have to walk a balance here. Because when I'm evangelizing someone, I'm recognizing that person is responsible to believe. But when I'm on my knees praying for that person's salvation, I'm affirming salvation is of the Lord. It is God who saves. He doesn't meet us halfway. He is the saving God. And so in verse 12, we see that we must receive him. And yet in verse 13, we see that it is a miracle of grace. Notice the language here. He uses three expressions, 
born not of blood. In other words, just because you came from the family of Abraham does not mean that you are a child of God. Or, in our context, your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were all committed believers, our Southern Baptists. We're born not of blood. As the old Southern Gospel hymn says, God ain't never had a grandchild. Only a child will do. But notice, nor is it by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man. It's, it's all of grace. The second and third expression, in fact, means that the new birth doesn't come naturally. It is supernatural. And John is piling up expressions to emphasize that our new birth is all of grace. We cannot go to the mirror and sing, how great thou art. Our salvation is all of grace. The new birth is always a miracle. People are born of God. And that's why we need Jesus. He is the word made flesh. He is our life. He is our very light incarnate. And this is first and foremost a word to every believer here today. This is a word to everyone who's already received Jesus. You know, the French have an expression, noblesse oblige. I even said it with my French accent. What does that mean? Nobility obliges. The point, believers have great privilege. We're children of God. Believers have great privilege, but with that comes great responsibility. So, because the Son of God has come for you, and you have been saved by his grace, how can you continue in your unforgiving spirit when God forgave you when you didn't deserve it? Because the Son of God has become flesh, how can you fail to be long-suffering with others when you know how long-suffering God is with you? If God, in Jesus Christ, by his cross and resurrection, has moved your judgment day from the future to the past, and that's what he's done. He's moved your future judgment day to the past. How can you live in ways continue to live in ways that are worthy of judgment. That is a word to every believer here. If someone came to you and witnessed the gospel, and that's why you're here today, because you believe that gospel because someone loved you enough to bring it to you, how can you not be a witness of that gospel? That's a word to every believer here today. But for those of you that don't yet believe, and we're going to have our musicians coming forward here. The cross is the great blessing in disguise. In one sense, the incarnation of the Son of God reflects how dark the situation is for you. If it took the Son of God to come, that tells you how dark the situation is. It's very dark for every unbeliever here don't think that God in the end is going to wink at your sin. The incarnation of the Son of God in his cross tells you he won't. He won't. 
But here's another word, the blessing in disguise. Don't think that he won't forgive you of your sins if you receive him. If you repent of your sin and receive Jesus, because the cross says he will. The cross says he will. And so as we come to our time of commitment, uh, we're going to stand here. We're going to have pastors at the end of every hour. hour. Maybe you're here today and you realize, I, I don't, I've not trusted Jesus. And I see Jesus as the light now. I see Jesus as my very life. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. If you have questions about the gospel, if you want to be saved, whatever it might be, won't you come as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.